How long would a clock continue working in a crocodile? For a zombie outbreak to be a legitimate threat, how contagious would the virus need to be? We obviously use more than 10% of our brain. Where did that idea come from? So, some spiders have a working memory. Could we teach them the spell? Hello, and welcome to Device Interviews, the complimentary uh, podcast to the main podcast, which is Device. In this episode, I'm going to present the full interview with Dr. Lisa Will and Professor Shane Haggard from San Diego City College. Um, First of all, I apologize about the quality of this narration. I'm just doing it at my uh, dining room table because I didn't get a chance to go into the studio and do it. Uh, So apologies for that. But the good thing about this particular interview is that there aren't many places to go back in and fact checked, uh, fact check. Uh, Shane and Lisa were pretty on the ball um, about everything that we said. So really, as per usual, I'm the only one that had any corrections. So you're not going to hear from me that much. Um, but uh, before we jump in, I do want to uh, quickly alert you that Life as we knew it, the book, Shane hadn't read it. Only Lisa and I had. So there was a little that that excluded him a little bit from the conversation, which Shane, I'm very sorry about. But he had a lot of really, really great answers to the hypothetical questions that I threw at him. So thank you for that. All right. Without further ado, here's the interview. First off, thanks for joining us here today. Uh, I'd like to introduce Dr. Lisa Will and Shane Haggard, Professor Shane Haggard. Oh, well, thank you for having us today, Emily. Uh, I'm uh, Professor Shane Haggard. I am a chemistry and analytical chemistry professor at San Diego City College. Um, Along with a background in chemistry, I have a background in chemical engineering and emergency medicine with uh, about 15 years experience in the field as a paramedic and uh, looking forward to uh, talking about some science and a little geeky today. Once again, thanks for having us. I'm Dr. Lisa Will, a professor of physics and astronomy at San Diego City College. I'm also the resident astronomer at the Fleet Science Center and the co-founder of Astronomy on Tap San Diego. Very cool. All right. So I think I'm just going to dive right into um, the novel itself. And um, the one glaring thing about uh, this book, which I think was one of the first things I asked you about, uh, Lisa, was the how did this the scientists in this novel not understand that the asteroid was going to be dense enough to knock the moon out of its orbit. Like for me, there's just, there seems like there's a lot of technology we have where we are measuring the density of planets and other galaxies. So getting the mass of an object that doesn't have anything orbiting it is actually incredibly difficult. Hmm. Um, For planets and other solar systems, we get their masses by looking at their gravitational tug on the star that they're orbiting. Um, And so that allows us to back out the mass. But we have a hard time finding out the masses of objects unless we know something in particular about them. Um, So for an asteroid, uh, we typically try to base what we think its density would be uh, if we know what sort of asteroid it is. And the way we estimate what type of asteroid one is is by looking at its uh, infrared reflectance spectrum. And uh, Professor Haggard might want to talk a little bit more about spectra in a moment, but uh, uh, the infrared fluorescence, or the, excuse me, the the infrared reflectance spectrum only gets you down a couple microns into the surface. 
And so if this is something that had a stony coating but was actually more iron underneath, you could have based uh, your total mass on what you thought it was made out of, what you saw on the surface. But mm. if it had a heavier core, you could uh, be off. But that level of miscalculation? Okay, probably not. Okay. <laughs> but there is there is a possible chance. And like I said, it is really difficult to determine the mass of an object if it doesn't have something orbiting it out in space, which is why we didn't really know how low mass Pluto was until its largest moon, Charon, was discovered in the late 1970s. Uh, so over 40 years after Pluto had been discovered. And that's mm. why, you know, Pluto had some issues. <laughs> So with um, the spectra she was talking about, the interesting thing about that is how that's how we identify things out in the cosmos because every atom, very molecule, everything that we look at has a unique spectra. So we could look at this asteroid or they could look at it and say, hey, it's got this particular spectra. So it's probably made of carbon or silica or this or that and not ever really see that maybe the inside is solid iron because they didn't see that signature fingerprint that you would see for for iron or something even heavier. So that's how we can actually go, oh, that star or that nebula or that or that is made out of this because we see that fingerprint, which is very cool science. And, and we do actually break up asteroids by their characteristic spectrum. And so in terms of th a couple broad categories, uh, there are ones that are more silicate-based, ones that are more carbon-based, and then ones are, that are more iron-based. And so they could have just misidentified based on the surface. I'll give them that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so the, I guess the, uh, the other comment I had about this is that we're able to kind of tell the density of planets in other solar systems and to kind of miss the density of a comet that was coming so close to Earth. Um, you're saying it's not likely, but it is feasible that there would be kind of a, a calculation with something that coming that close to us. Yeah, it it actually could uh, it, it it actually could be very easy to underestimate or overestimate the mass to get the mass wrong. When we do look at other solar systems, um, we can get their density if we if we have two particular uh, variables for the planets. Uh, if we're using um, the Doppler shifted spectrum of the star, we can get the mass of the planet. And if we're looking for the um, dimming of starlight by the planet passing in between us and the star, the transit method, we can get the radius of the planet. If we have those two things, we can actually calculate the density of that planet. But we, ne we need help. We need the information about the other object in order to get that for us. So, yeah, uh, mass can be difficult. You know, if it doesn't have something orbiting it or if it's not orbiting another object, if we don't see that gravitational influence, we often are basing assumptions off things that we've already observed. Right. So, in this book, this asteroid hits the moon and knocks it out of the orbit um, and moves it into an orbit that is closer to the Earth, which causes great changes on the Earth that we're going to get to in a minute. Um, but one of the big fears in the book is that the moon is going to crash into the Earth. Like, how do we know that this new orbit is stable? And that was something that I thought of as well, like if, an, if a comet kind of hits the, the moon, what is the likelihood that it's going to pick up a new orbit that is even closer to the Earth instead of kind of either spinning out or spinning forward? <laughs> um, just like playing pool, uh, it's a matter of velocity and angle of attack. Um, something bigger than what they probably were implying with this asteroid, but something big hitting the moon could knock it towards the Earth. 
the question about the stability of the orbit. Well, stability of an orbit is actually kind of relative. Mm. Uh, stable over how long? Um, and so uh, orbits can decay. They can decay on order of hours. They can, can decay over billions of years. Because the moon is currently in a decaying orbit, right? It's spinning away from us? It's actually, uh, our moon is currently moving away from us. Yeah. Uh, at the rate at which your fingernails grow, it's actually moving away from us. And I, I love that stat because my students never think of their fingernails as moving, so I freak them out that way. <laughs> but um, yeah, so our moon is actually moving away from us uh, due to tidal friction between the moon and the Earth. But uh, other things like uh, artificial satellites that we put up into orbit, unless we boost them, their orbits will decay. And so, um, but those can be over periods of years. For astronomical objects, we can actually talk about orbital decays that take, you know, millions, billions of years. And over the course of a human lifetime, that's stable enough. Hmm. Um. Because wouldn't so the other thought I had about that was the moon's own gravity. Like would that that would be playing into place in terms of how the moon restabilized itself in another um, orbit, or is it mostly the Earth's gravity that's still going to be impacting that? Um, it's the mutual gravitational attraction. Mm -hmm. uh, the moon's gravity will affect the tides on Earth. Yeah, that's the big player there. Um, but uh, it is a mutual gravitational attraction. So if the moon gets nudged towards the Earth, it will be more attracted to the Earth. Its orbit will likely be more elliptical than it is currently. Oh, more elliptical. So that was, would it even keep the elliptical? Okay. Yeah, it, it could be. And once again, everything is based on angle of attack and the velocity of the collision and the mass of the impactor, yeah. right? So there's a lot of possibilities. You can knock the moon out. You can knock the moon in. Uh, you could destroy the moon. <laughs> So that wasn't that was another option. Well, I, kind of going back to the other question, I thought a little bit about it, the, if this comet was um, so dense, <laughs> like what are the chances of it actually? Yeah, just destroying the moon because the moon itself. I'm not sure how dense. Sorry, I'm not sure how dense the moon actually is. If a comet that dense would, instead of moving it, would actually destroy it. Um, the average density of the moon is very similar to the average density of the mantle of the Earth. So mm. think basaltic rock. That would uh, that would be a good indicator. So something large enough to actually move the moon probably would have broken up the moon at least somewhat. Mm. But, you know, for the purpose of the book, just nudging it further, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good enough. That's good enough. All right, moving into tides. Um, so high tides, to kind of go over how high tides and low tides work, obviously high tides are when the moon is a little bit closer to the earth, low tide, or is it the other way around? Um, so high tides... Is so the weirdest thing about tides is that you have two high tides and two low tides each yeah. day because uh, the way tides work is that the tides are due to a difference in gravitational force felt on two different sides of an object. So um, the tidal bulge of the Earth, what we call it, where the oceans are expanding, are always pointed on a line between the Earth and the moon. So mm -hmm. it's always trying to point either directly towards or directly away from the moon. And so we have these two high tides, and then the two low tides are kind of perpendicular to that line. Yeah. So it's it's hard to visualize. Um, but uh, if the if the moon got closer, the tides would become more extreme because the gravitational effect would be stronger on both of those points. So think of it like a rubber band stretching. But it's the tides are the strongest when the moon is the furthest away from the planet. Isn't that correct? Or the highest? Not necessarily. Um, it, it, I would 
the tides are roughly correlate with the phase of the moon. Mm-hmm. So you get the highest tide, the highest high tides um, um, at a new moon and full moon, and the lowest high tides at first and third quarter, in terms of the phases of the moon. So it doesn't really matter the distance because the we always talk about the moon having an elliptical orbit. But if I showed you a picture of it, you'd say, hey, "Isn't that a circle?" <laughs> um, so it's very close to a circle. Okay, so um, just because I think that I might be uh, phrasing this wrong, because we get two high tides a uh, day and two low tides, and those high tides tend to correspond with when the moon is actually in its, like even if it is actually a circle, is in one of the furthest points away in the, because like the, it's pulling, so it's pulling the water with it, correct? Right, so okay. you, you would think that the the tides are, if you were, if you were the tides, mm-hmm. you would either be... Uh, pointing you would see the moon directly above you or at on the point directly opposite you if you were looking up in the sky okay and so it's 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 really it's really weird to visualize that my my students always get the one high tide right because they think oh the water wants to fall towards the moon Mm. but it's the water on the opposite side of the planet that's getting left behind yeah that's the difficult one exactly because it's it's like getting squished (laughs) just a little bit um so I thought about that when the moon gets pushed closer to the earth in this novel, um, there are suddenly rampant high tides all over the entire planet at the same time. And that seemed to me like, I understand that maybe the initial push of the earth closer to the moon might cause some, like, you know, a giant disruption in the tidal system. But, you know, San Diego would have been gone. New York City would be gone. Uh, uh, Washington, D.C. as well as, you know, most of Japan, if not all of Japan, um, like the coast of every country is going to be eliminated by the tides that were described in this novel across the world at the same time. And I was thinking to myself, like, but wait, what about the pull? Like, where does that all of that extra water go? Wouldn't some of it like expose the um, the shelf instead of actually destroying the city, cities? Yeah. So when you have these extreme high tides, you should also have extreme low tides. And so uh, to charitably give at the same time, we could say on the same day, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, you can think of that tidal bulge being fixed and the solid part of the earth ro- rotating underneath it. So as every city came under that uh, heightened increase of water, as every city rotated underneath that, then they would f- experience these high tides. Um, we would also have a, expect a change in the length of the day if the moon was closer. Hmm. Um, Think of it as the ice skater problem. Uh, the moon and the earth are connected by gravity. So if you think of the moon as being your hand, um, your torso being the ice skater's uh, body, and your arm being gravity, if the moon comes closer, the earth should spin up. So I didn't even think about that because that's not something that's addressed in this book at no, all. No, it isn't. It's the, like the days would be getting shorter. And so if you want to charitably once again read into that, <laughs> then the the difference in time of high tide for each of the coastal regions would be closer than it is right now. Hmm. It wouldn't be spaced as, as far. Um, right, I'm going to, before, further, I'm going to switch over to disease and uh, talk about, because one of the other things that kind of happens in this book is that everything gets cold. So they don't really talk about the, the days uh, shortening, but they do talk about the absolute blackness that kind of happens. Like the world is covered in volcanic ash and everything gets cold. And, um, you know, the protagonist, she goes out into the woods and talks about how like you can't hear anything anymore. 
the the birds are quiet. There's no bugs because it's too cold. They're all dead. And so when everybody gets the flu and starts getting very sick, that was the first thing I thought of. I'm like, how are they? I mean, I understand that they're all interacting with each other. So there's a great scene where they all go Christmas shopping or go Christmas caroling in the street. And they, like, you know, they're obviously rubbing elbows and stuff like that. And that's how a disease can be spread. However, Shane, if there's no bugs <laughs> and there's no animals and it's cold enough that people can't go outside for more than a couple of hours a day, is it likely that a disease would be able to spread still? Definitely, because we still see that even today, mm. you know, in the winters and, you know, the extreme north and so forth, where it is much colder than this here in San Diego, um, you still see disease being spread, even though that there are no bugs or everything's in hibernation, or so there's no animals there to spread it we still see disease get spread, all right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very interesting that diseases um, like the virus, the flu virus and so forth, they're very resilient. They can resist a lot of extreme conditions, all right? They can go dormant and just stay dormant until the right time for it to come out again. Uh, and even if you do have certain strains die off, um, it's like I, uh, I, I tell my partner, um, you know, when you buy that 99.9% uh, killing everything, you're leaving the 0.01 that can survive that. And now they're going to reproduce and grow and grow and grow. So what you're going to have is maybe some of the weaker strains die off, but the ones that are more very, 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 uh, virulent, I'll get it out in a minute, um, <laughs> they're going to hang around and they are going to then multiply and multiply and multiply and you're going to get more resistant strings, stronger strings that are going to give a stronger impact when they do start getting spread. Okay, because it's about, what I want to say eight months. I might be wrong on that, and I'll correct it and post if it's not eight months. <laughs> um, Post-check, it was eight months on the money. Anyway, continue. It's about eight months after the uh, moon is brought closer to the earth that this disease, which is compared to the 1918 uh, Spanish flu epidemic, mm-hmm. um, which 100 years anniversary... I guess. <laughs> it's a grim anniversary. Yeah, a grim anniversary. Grim but, you know, a third of the world's population was wiped out that mm-hmm. this disease. And in this, the book, you see that where the, the main character goes to the hospital to try to get help. And there's nothing but two nurses left because everybody's died, right. which, um, you know, kind of shows you how potent the disease is supposed to be in this novel. Um, but, you know, the Spanish flu also happened during the spring when there was, I mean, there was a lot more going on. It also happened during World War One, where... The, the cold and the camps, everybody was collected together. So it created an infection ground. But um, And the interesting thing about the Spanish flu and their research on that, on that flu was the strain was very um, vir- virulent. It was very, but it was also unique in the way it attacked its victim. Hmm. Um, that normally, the, so normally you expect the flu when you attack somebody, children and elderly are what's usually targeted because they have the weakened immune system. Um, so the immune system can't fight it off. This particular strain actually attacked the immune system. So if you had a very healthy immune system, you got hit harder by it hmm. than those that had a weaker immune system because you didn't have as strong, you didn't have as much there fighting things off, so you didn't get as big of a bug. So that was another, that was an interesting way that, you know, the Spanish flu spread and was so virulent because the healthy people got a harder hit on it hmm. than the children and the elderly. 
Because what I was reading about the Spanish flu was that one of the reasons why it was so prevalent is because people had weakened systems because it was war, it was rations, people right. were, were malnutrition. Uh, you know, not only were they rubbing elbows, like everybody was really close to each other, but they weren't eating properly. And that's also the case mm -hmm. of what was happening. Like the characters in this book are starving themselves, basically eating right. as little as possible in order to make it stretch as long. Um, so that, that creates um, kind of a happy vessel for... It does. A, a virus. And if you have a very strong immune system and that's what the virus is targeting, then you're going to feel it worse than somebody that doesn't have a lot of immune system left. Mm. So which kind of, yes, there's going to be a lot of sick people. There's going to be a lot of things. But depending on how your body is reacting to it, you're going to have different responses to the virus that does invade your body. Um, and you see that with just normal flu viruses today. You know, you can get the flu shot and you know, at least you can get the flu shot and you might have different reactions to it, but based on how your body is working at that mm. point. Uh, even you both, even though you're both malnutritionists and uh, not sleeping well and you're freezing to death and all that, you might have different responses based on what's going on inside your body. So there are, there are people in the novel, there are characters that don't get sick, even though they are exposed to this, this virus. And it seemed like the majority of people got sick, uh, but some people are just carriers. Would you could you perhaps elaborate on that? That even with a weakened system, how some people can be susceptible to viruses and other people not. So you know there are people who are carriers of different. We have carriers all the time of, of of viruses. This is their body has built up a defense where that virus is not going to take an effect. So in in the book, you probably do have these characters that maybe have been exposed to a weaker strain, have built up an immunity. That's the reason. You know, we give people the flu shot, right, um, is to kind of build that up. So you could probably have these characters in this book who have been exposed to something weaker or have been exposed to over a long period of time. They're basically just a carrier now. Their body has built up enough defense that they can fight it off. But the minute they run into contact with somebody who hasn't, mm. and that's how it's going to get spread. Mm. All right. And we see that even today. Like we can have, um, you know, my years as being a paramedic, there would be certain, you know, a hospital would be like, okay, this is ground zero for this particular strain of the flu. If you go there, you know, you're running a risk if you go somewhere else carrying to somebody else. You know, it, you could become the carrier um, kind of thing. So it's it's one of the things that you do actually kind of keep in mind even today to keep from spreading diseases from different areas because this strain and this strain might be different. You might be being a carrier and you don't want to expose anybody else. Okay. Um, moving back to the moon's impact on the earth. <laughs> uh, well, the what kind of happens in the novel in a very slow way, in a way that doesn't ever really impact the, the Evans family, the main characters, but they hear about it, is the volcanic eruptions that are going around. Because I think one of them happened, the book takes place in Pennsylvania, and there was an eruption in Canada where, you know, they were seeing basically the ash, like fallout, which caused a lot of, um, you know, caused darkness and death in their skies. So, you know, in addition to all of the tides changing, um, we have these volcanic eruptions, but also earthquakes, you know, on the West coast, we, I, you know, we might be washed away by the, uh, the tides, but you know, we already have a problem with earthquakes. So how would something like the moon becoming, uh, the moon getting closer to the earth affect the problem we already have? There are moons in the solar system where we see geologic activity uh, because of tidal forces acting upon them from the moons that they orbit. Hmm. So off the top of my head, uh, the most common moon that we think of in this case is uh, Jupiter's moon Io, 
which is the most volcanically active body in the solar system. Um, it is active because of the tidal forces of Jupiter and another one of Jupiter's moons having a resonance effect on it. Basically, it just doesn't let the crust of the moon ever rest. And so the way it's alleviating the stress is through geological activity, which means that when whenever we've been able to take a photo of Io close up, which we've been able to do ever since we've been sensing spacecraft to Jupiter in the 70s, every time we see it, it has volcanoes in eruption, often multiple volcanoes going off at a time. Um, another moon where we think this is uh, a tidal forcing or tidal heating is actually causing geological activity is Enceladus, one of the moons of Saturn, where we actually see water geysers, where there is a liquid water, if not ocean, at least a large, large quantity of water underneath the surface of Enceladus, and it gets forced up as geysers, likely due to Saturn's tidal forces acting upon it. So this sort of forced geological activity is something we witness in our own solar system, just usually it's the large bodies causing it on the smaller so objects. So you say geyser, you mean something like Old Faithful, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we actually do see, uh, when we take a look at Enceladus, uh, we see these uh, liquid, we see these geysers. And when you, we take a look at the chemical spectra, they're water. And Enceladus has a surface of water ice. And so if you have a relatively smooth surface of water ice, it means you have fresh water uh, as a somewhere near it, fresh uh, liquid water somewhere near it. And so, yeah, volcanic activity, geological activity like earthquakes, um, that actually would be very likely if the moon's tidal effect on the Earth got stronger. Okay. Um, the, I guess the havoc that it wreaks, though. I mean, like the, uh, I mean, we we've seen it with um, volcanic eruptions in Europe. They they, they land planes. Um, the lasting effects, though, that the volcano seems to have, at least in the case of this book, and I understand that the, um, you know, this is book one of a series. There's an, the second book follows a different family, if I remember correctly, and then the third book kind of brings them all together. All right, correction. Uh, there are actually four books in the Last Survivors series, of which Life as We Knew It is the first book of. The second book is The Dead and the Gone, uh, which takes place in the same time frame as Life as We Knew It, but in New York City. It focuses on Alex Morales, a Puerto Rican 17-year-old. Uh, the third book is This World We Live In, which returns to Miranda Evans' story. Uh, and we find out what happened to her dad. And the fourth book is The Shade of the Moon, which switches the narrative to John, Miranda's younger brother. Um, the whole series is just, it's really great. You should really read it. Anyway, back to the interview. But the idea that there's this one volcanic eruption that's kind of disrupting their entire existence. Um, we see, you know, when volcanic activity happens on Earth, it clears out, like, you know, maybe in a couple of months if we're unlucky. I mean, like the effects might be long term, but the skies clear up a lot quicker. Um, so is that a little bit of fiction that they're kind of elongating the, um, the effect of the volcano or would the volcano have to have been going off that entire time? Yeah, on Earth, because of our relatively strong gravity, um, what goes up comes down rather quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I think of differences like Mars where you can have a global dust storm because Mars only has one-third the gravity of the Earth. So if you kick dust up, it can stay up afloat in the atmosphere for quite some time before it comes back down. Um, on Earth, to have this sort of long-term change to the atmosphere, you would either need uh, multiple volcanoes going off 
or not just one wouldn't likely do this. Although, as we've seen here on Earth, one is enough to wreak havoc around the Earth, but for a limited period of time. Sure. Mm-hmm. I always think back of the reports about uh, when Krakatoa erupted in the 1800s. There were reports of vivid sunsets uh, so red uh, that uh, fire trucks were called or, or fire departments were called, I think, uh, even in New York. So there's uh, you can do extreme changes to the atmosphere with one large volcanic eruption. You know, Pinatubo, the ash spread very, very far here on Earth. But, yeah, it would be a limited period of time. So that might be a little bit of artistic license in okay. this book. So uh, remind me again, Krakatoa was where in the Earth that there was, um, you know... Indonesia. Indonesia. The, so the Java, I believe. People were calling for help in New York when because of something because that was happening. Because there was happening. a red glow on the horizon. So, uh, yeah, and I'm pretty sure it was Krakatoa. But I remember uh, learning about that because it, it is an example of a dramatic uh, atmospheric change. Mm. Um, uh, you know, a, a lot of people don't think things can change our atmosphere, which is something that we run into in current events. And it is an example of how um, geological activity can change an atmosphere as well as uh, other means. <laughs> and that much geological activity would change the atmosphere in a lot of ways, because if it got that cold and stayed that cold, then gases that we would normally expect to behave in a certain way at a certain temperature pressure would change. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, you have a volcano erupt at night, CO2, carbon dioxide, which is one of the gas products, falls down the side of the mountain and could layer a valley, all right? Well, if you have these type of changes, you're going to have different gas densities where the heavier gases are going to be closer to the earth and the lighter ones are going to be higher up. You're not going to have as good of a mixing like we do right now. So there could be whole places where the whole area is just covered in just carbon dioxide. Hmm. Oh, yeah, now you have me think of whether or not some of the particles would be easier to act as nucleation sites for water droplets, ice crystals, cloud formation in the atmosphere. So right. it might not be the volcanic cloud itself, but the uh, basically seeding of mm-hmm. nucleation sites for cloud formation. That could work. Oh, that could work. Because we talk a lot about seeding in the pilot for this <laughs> particular um, show. Uh, okay, I think that those were all of the major bullet points that we had kind of outlined. Um, the The book itself is, I know that, Shane, if you can jump in and out in terms of what we're discussing. I don't know if there's anything in the book, um, Lisa, that you found to be kind of out outrageous that we haven't discussed here. So I, I have to admit when I when I read uh, books, um, I try to not I try to allow myself to uh, just enjoy the magic as opposed to pick out too many of the nitpicky scientific details. What I, what I actually did appreciate about this one is that every event, whether or not there was some um, dramatic spin to it or not, was something plausible. Mm-hmm. Can something hit the moon? Yes. Could the moon going into a different orbit disrupt the tides? Yes. Could that drive uh, volcanism, geological activity? Yes. Uh, So the extremes, maybe not, but we tend not to write about boring things. We tend not want to read about things that don't have dramatic tension. So what I liked about it was that just the the spin forward Mm. from these events, I actually thought was reasonable overall. Um, I, I, I don't think the author, I think the author has even m- admitted they didn't do much research. They didn't try to get that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, they, I, they didn't want to get that 
bogged down by the scientific details when they wanted to tell the story of what was happening to this family. Hmm. And I can understand that. They did they did they did a scientific setup and then went with the, the how horrible it was and and uh, how difficult it could be to survive and the beauty of trying to survive. Um but I I don't I think we've addressed all the things that I can that I remember, you know, especially uh, that uh, I was looking at going, did that happen? Um, I think the biggest thing for me, though, um, can something hit the moon and change its orbit? Yes. Likely, it would be, in order to change its orbit dramatically, it probably also would have been big enough to actually destroy the moon. Hmm. Or we would have had to have dealt with lots of debris coming our way. And that was something that wasn't handled. But I'll forget that. I'll forget that. Because yeah, the character um, talks a lot about how they can see the moon in the sky. And actually, ever since I've read the book, I, you know, in the winter, you see the moon a lot during the day kind of thing. And I think about how it's this kind of, it's a really nice thing to, you know, when you see the sun, the, the sun and the moon in the sky at the same time. Um, but thinking about what it would look like if it was closer. And I like, it's just this kind of looming reminder of what um, your life was like now. It's, it's, it was really um, a lot of great imagery and yeah. the book really made you think about, you know, h- kind of how big a part of our lives the moon really is. It's there every day. Yeah, we, we, we take the moon for granted. It's, it's always, you know, for, for us, it's just always been there. Uh, the moon turns out to be a stabilizing influence on the earth that we think it's what helps keeps our axial tilt at 23 and a half degrees fairly uh, consistently. When we take a look at Mars, which has two moons, but they're tiny little captured asteroids, they're tiny little potato looking things, right? Um, Mars surface shows evidence that its axial tilt has flopped around quite a bit. Hmm. We see things that look like polar ice sheets covered uh, by dirt along its equator. Uh, so uh, we do actually think that the moon is an important stabilizing force for the Earth. So any change to the moon would affect the Earth. All right. All right. The last thing I want to ask you about is to talk a little bit about the sky tonight. Um, and, uh, this episode I believe is going to be airing, um, in the early summer. So maybe like in late June, June-ish kind of thing. So I don't know if there's anything in particular that is going on with the, the sky tonight that might be worth mentioning now. I haven't planned out the sky tonight for the summer yet. In July, we often do a Comic-Con themed one. Uh, so the Sky Tonight show at the Fleet Science Center in July usually has a bit of a science fiction uh, twist. Uh, sometimes we do the science of Star Wars. We've done the science of Star Trek. We've done the uh, life in the universe sorts of things. So I'll have to think of what I'm going to come up with. But we always welcome people in costume for the July Sky Tonight show. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of... Um I went to your last uh, one that was in July, and there was a lot of Star Wars like kids there. It's a lot of, it's really cute, is what it is. <laughs> yeah. When they show up, I, there was all these little rays. It yeah. Was so cute. I oh. love seeing the little girls dress up as Ray. Uh, we usually do the Star Wars Day at the library in May, hmm. and we give talks and demonstrations which, there. Which library? The uh, Central Library. The Central Library. Ah, uh, all right. Um, all right. Well, I think that's that's all that we had for you guys if there's anything else that you wanted to touch on i really do appreciate you guys coming in today it's been um and thank you again uh, lisa for recommending this book it was um a really really interesting uh take on not only into young adult fiction just because a lot of young adult fiction is a lot more serious than the label that's put on it so 
I I actually really love young adult fiction for that reason. Uh, it it gets a lot into the emotions. It's serious. It's these burdens that fall upon young adults, and so that's what we actually see in this book. Something horrible has happened in her universe, and what does she have to do to shoulder that burden? It's really so. I recommend why. <laughs> And it gets them excited in science, too, which sometimes can be very hard to do with, with you know, young adults. It's like, you know, what am I going to do? And it's like you show them, you tell them about this, and they get kind of excited. Well, can that happen? Well, is that real? You know, and then that can really kind of spark, spark that excitement in a, in a young adult to pursue a science course or something to yeah. find out more. Well, here's hoping, right? <laughs> hope so. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Lisa and Shane. I had a blast talking to you. I learned so very much. Uh, I am going to link in the description of the show to all of the activities that Lisa and Shane mentioned in the podcast, like the sky tonight and uh, astronomers on tap. That sounds a lot of fun. Um, But yeah, thanks again uh, for just a really, really enjoyable interview. Um, This is Device Interviews. A quick shout out to Derek Acosta and John Wanzer who made these audio recordings of the interviews. Uh, Audio recordings of these interviews? That's not the way that you say a sentence. Uh, Thanks to Derek and John. You guys really helped out making uh, this episode and this interview possible. All right. See you guys. Bye.